Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Greetings and welcome to our deep sea domain. This is Under Consultation, an episode-by-episode podcast-type situation through the UK's greatest video game challenge TV show, Games Master. I am one of your hosts, Luke Owen, and other podcasts may come and go, but we just keep on coming. And if I'm at least as half as good as Luke, I'll be twice as good as Hepatitis. I am Ash Versus. This episode aired on the 24th of October 1996. Tekken 2 tops the console charts. Boyzone still have some words for us at the top of the pops. And a goofy movie tops the UK box office. Going somewhere, Pop? Sure. It's a vacation with me and my best buddy, Donald Duck. No, silly. With you. <laughs> it's goofy. Give me a big Stop goofing around. In an outrageous full-length animated feature, we'll spend some real quality time together. I think I'm going to be sick. Walt Disney Pictures presents... Come on, this is going to be fun. The story of a father who couldn't be closer. That's the spirit, Maxie. This is embarrassing. To driving his son crazy. This is pathetic. Now, they're getting a crash course. In becoming best friends. It's Bigfoot! Could you back up a bit, Mr. Foot? Uh, You're out of focus. I can tell by the look on your face that you are overjoyed at this number one movie and the fact that it falls in our regular timeline. Absolutely bloody thrilled to see a goofy movie top the UK box office because it didn't do very well in the States. And this is like... Nearly 18 months after the film came out, it came out in April 1995. We're getting it October 1996. This is a failed Disney venture. This is a Jeffrey Katzenberg project that he greenlit and then got fired. And because it was a Jeffrey Katzenberg project, 
it was more or less kind of ignored. It wasn't going to be as prestigious as The Lion King or something like uh, Hunchback. So it was passed off to the TV de uh, department, the animation department. It was passed off to the French department, the Australian department. And it was done, done on this very small, low budget thing. But this was kind of the second attempt that Disney had to make the Disney afternoon movies. Because they'd done DuckTales, Treasures of the Lost Lamb. And then they had this one, which is based off Goof Troop. And the idea was if this was successful, they would do a Chippendale Rescue Rangers movie. But this movie was not successful. Uh, it has gained like a massive cult following. And for me, and I, I say this with no hint of irony at all, this is my favourite Disney movie of the 1990s. It's, it is a sequel to Goof Troop. Like, it's set two, three years afterwards. I suppose technically, what, two years after Goof Troop? But then by the time we get it, it's like three years or four years or whatever. But yeah, it I is think just because they wanted to do a movie, they thought, we'll just age Max up. We'll, we'll provide a reason for there to be conflict between Goofy and his son. And of course, taking place a few years later, Max is now in high school. Oh, no, teenagers, Luke. Oh, they're the absolute worst. Absolute Mate, worst. It's in your future, not mine. But, and I say this having seen the movie and gone, it's a, it, it's a good movie. I first saw this on video and I struggle to picture seeing this on the big screen mm, because it yeah. feels direct to video. And part of that is probably where it was passed pillar to post and went around the different studios and it took ages to get out there. And part of it is because just the, the I don't know, the name A Goofy Movie, it feels very direct to video special. It's amazing that this is a theatrical movie because it doesn't feel in the same way that I first saw Treasure of the Lost Lamp, the DuckTales movie on video. And it feel that feels like a director video movie, but it looks like one as well. But it was a theatrical release. And I think it's the same thing with this. And I, you know, I think it's part of the reason why it didn't do particularly well that. And I don't think that Michael Eisner, because it was the Jeffrey Katzenberg project, really wanted to give it all, give it his all because it's not a Michael Eisner project. In fact, like some of the things that are in this that Jeffrey Katzenberg wanted, Michael Eisner changed. I would argue some of those are for the better because one of Jeffrey Katzenberg's first big things he wanted on this movie was for Bill Farmer, the voice of Goofy, to not do it in his Goofy voice and just do it in a regular voice because Katzenberg's fear was people won't want to watch a whole movie of a Goofy voice. So just record it like in your normal Bill Farmer voice. So they did this for like a couple of weeks, filmed the like recorded the entire movie with just Bill Farmer as Bill Farmer. Michael Eisner and actually Roy Disney heard it was like, why isn't this a goofy voice? People, if people are going to a goofy movie, they want to hear goofy. So he went back into the studio and re-recorded all of his lines again in the goofy voice. I was watching uh, one of the Sunday Columbos because I think it's what, five USA or whatever. Every Sunday. You get back-to-back -back Columbos. It's great. It's just brilliant that you know, no matter what, you can flick on the TV on a Sunday and find a Columbo. And this was a relatively early one, and there was part of it where it was to do with a missing Texan uh, who would actually be murdered, but he was just listed as missing, or maybe he's in Europe. And Columbo's going around and goes to see this guy's heart doctor. And I'm sat there, and I'm like, the guy looks like Radar from MASH, but he doesn't sound like him. And I'm like, what is it? And so I'm like, fine, Google, IMDB. Oh, it's Piglet. <laughs> like, it is actually the guy that voiced Piglet right up until the 90s. And you talk about someone just doing it with their own voice rather than the goofy voice. Turns out the dude behind Piglet 
His real voice is essentially Piglet, which means Piglet was telling Columbo not to smoke. I'm actually really glad that the Eisner and Disney kind of pushed Farmer into doing it. Like, I think for Farmer, it was an interesting challenge for him as well, because doing the goofy voice, and Farmer's been doing the goofy voice for decades at this point, it is, you know, it's just doing the voice. Here, he's got to act. He's actually got to do a performance as goofy. He's got to show actual emotion and really sell the the conflict between him and his son. If you haven't seen the movie, the basic plot of it is that Max has got a crush on a girl at school, she invites him over to a party, but however, Goofy is worried that his son is becoming a, they're becoming estranged, so he takes them on a road trip. And they go on this road trip. It's the same road trip that Goofy took with his dad. They're going to go fishing. Max doesn't want to do it. He gets dragged along. And Max lies to the girl, Roxanne, that he's actually going to a Powerline concert in Los Angeles. Powerline being sort of like this prince step-in that they've kind of got in the movie. It's then this road trip of Max lying to Roxanne and trying to convince Goofy to go to LA instead to go and watch this Powerline concert. And along the way, shenanigans happen. And it's and it's wonderful. It's beautiful. And I, and I really, really do love the emotion of the movie. I love the, the songs in the movie, not just the Devon ones of doing Powerline of Eye to Eye and Stand Out, but also just like the actual regular songs as well, like On the Open Road and After Today, the opening track. I just think there's so much good in this movie. It's a really, really funny movie. It's a really well-performed movie. I think the Tevin Campbell songs are superb. I'm glad that now the cult following of this movie has made Disney reassess it. Because there was a period of time where Disney buried all of the Disney afternoon stuff. Because they were kind of embarrassed by it. Because they went through this period of time where they were like, that's TV. That's so below what Disney do. We should only focus on the film side, the things we do, and ignore flops and things like that. So you, if you went to a Disney park, there was never anything a Goofy movie related. There was never anything Powerline related. Never anything DuckTales related. There's a Scrooge McDuck stuff, but there's not DuckTales stuff. There's not Chippendale's Rescue Ranger stuff. But in recent years, they have eased off on that and are now embracing the Disney afternoon stuff, I think because... The kids now are now the adults who are taking their kids. So they're trying to appeal to their nostalgia. And I've watched some videos of Bill Farmer uh, singing the songs from a Goofy movie and doing performances. They've had like Devin Campbell do performances of Eye to Eye and Stand Out and things like that. And it's just, it's it's really, really nice. And I, and I like that it has now become an actually embraced part of Disney's history. I mean, it's accepted enough to be on Disney+. Plus, Although... It does look like a lightly upscaled SD. They haven't gone the full 1080p transfer on it, which is a shame. Same with DuckTales. Yeah, they did that with all of the Disney movies. It's funny, I was talking to a friend of mine recently who got Disney+, Plus, and he was watching them. He was like, why do all the Disney movies look like shit? And I was like, it's because Disney put all of their stuff through a automatic upscaler thing. And an automatic upscaler thing doesn't really upscale things properly. So everything just looks a bit shit now. Obviously, the prestige movies... They get they get the wallop, you know. Oh, yeah, they, they get, get the, the full. Well, they got the full Blu-ray transfers and things like that. Pro- probably probably higher than Blu-ray. They probably. I mean, I think some of the stuffs on in 4K. I could be wrong. Maybe I'm yeah, getting exactly. my streaming services mixed up. But yeah, come on, guys, give us a full 1080p. You know, you've got it laid around there. Obviously, this was just called a goofy movie. There was the direct to video actual sequel for this a uh, few years later. What Turn of the Millennium with an extremely goofy movie which is not very good the one thing i think the ducktales movie had over this is it had a proper subtitle and i think that made it to me feel more like oh this is a theatrical movie it's like 
It's DuckTales. You know DuckTales. You've seen them on that television. But look, they're in a big adventure. The big adventure has a title as opposed to this, which is It's a Goofy Movie. I, I, I get that. And actually, the last thing I wanted to note on this before we move on is that you're never too far from being welcomed when you've got an animated movie. And we've been welcomed here because he's in the voice cast as a Bigfoot. One of my favorite scenes in the movie. Also, Rob Paulson and Jim Cummings are in the, in the uh, voice lineup as well. And Wallace Shawn. Always love a bit of Wallace Shawn. Inconceivably. Inconceivably. And while we're talking of inconceivably casting, Paulie Shaw's in the movie. Uncredited, but it is unmistakably Paulie Shaw doing his weasel type stuff. Which is appropriate because, you know, Goofy could be a weasel. We don't know. He's a mog. There's the official Disney canon of him. He's a mog. He's not, he's not quite a man. He's not quite a dog. He's a mog. He's his own best friend to steal John Candy's line. <laughs> exactly, yeah, because Pluto is a dog, but Goofy is on his feet. So Goofy is a mog. They're really making this shit up as they go along. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. So let's get into this episode itself. And I think we do need to talk about the new intro we have for this series, which I think is, it might be my favourite one. I love the intro for Series 6. But it is so indicative of the change. We talked about it being Dom and Friends. There is nary a hint of video games to this intro. And no. I think you'll find that reflected in our own new intro. There is no video games in our new intro either. I removed the video game sound effects that normally open and close our theme this time because the series we're covering has done similar. This is about Dominic. He's fall from heaven, rescued by the mermaids. And their cleavage. And their cleavage and ending up in Atlantis. They save him by giving him a big old kiss on the face and then some lovely jazz sax comes in with wee, 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 wee. So he gives a little cheeky wink and a thumbs up to the camera. I do like the attention to detail though that he is wearing his costume from series five as he falls. I thought that's just a nice little touch. Now, there's something that it comes up later in the episode. It might even be episode two for all I know, but season numbering. Because this is season six. Apart from in the episode, when introducing Kirk Ewing, Dominic says, in the first series, he was plain old Kirk Ewing. Now in the second series, it's Kirk Ewing from Viz Entertainment. So are we actually saying that at the time, series five was legitimately considered all new Games Master, therefore series one? I would think in Dominic's mind and the production team's mind, perhaps, but I'd would think probably more Dominic's than anyone else. Series one through four are Games Master. Series five onwards is New Games Master because the show is still called New Games Master in the uh, sort of the, the bumpers. So yeah, I guess in his mind, series five is actually series one of New Games Master, and this is series two of New Games Master. But I think for our purposes, we're calling it series six. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say I'm not redoing the numbering, not at this point. It would be way too confusing. Dude, let's talk about the set. Oh, what a set it is. This is my favourite set. And I mean that versus location, because for me, Series 2 will always be my favourite look of Games Master. And technically, yes, it is a filming location. It is a set. But it's, it's using existing infrastructure. The place was a real building. This, like Series 4, is a constructed set. Although even... Series 4 used a real location, but it had a lot of set dressing, a lot of stuff brought in. But this is just 100% 
fantasy island shit, and I am so here for it. The kind of the water, the screens, the rocks, everything. It's just so cool. And also, I know the green screen stuff from last series didn't land with a lot of our listeners because it did look a bit pants. A little bit Smackdown versus Raw cardboard fans. Yeah, three frames of animation just looping over and over. But this, whilst yes, it does look a little bit cheesy, it's real, it's solid, it's palpable. It's something people can react to and it's not just a void. I actually really like that it's um, like there's stuff in the background, there's stuff to kind of like not focus the eye on, but if you're like looking at it, you can pick things out. Like there's old Games Master logos sort of plastered around that old Games Master font that they're not using anymore. And it almost like that little nod to the past that is throughout this. And you're right, like it's just it feels tangible, which what I think Series 5 kind of missed a bit because it was so much blue screen. This actually feels like this is a physical thing. And yeah, and it I, it feels grander than what we get with Series 7. This feels like actually like the grandest set they've had thus far that isn't like, you know, the huge uh, power station that we had in Series 2. And it carries over to the Games Master himself because we started off with Games Master where it was Patrick Moore and some computer effects overlaid. And then we did start to get actual set pieces with an actual kind of like cyber monocle thing and whatnot. And then that carried on last season as well where there was an actual kind of you know we had a proper headpiece he's in full makeup now he he is poseidon he is lord of the ocean he, he's got everything going on probably quite uncomfortable for patrick moore looks bloody brilliant though it does look really really good it's one of the, you know we I, I said back in series four that i did not like the look of games master and that because it looked really cheap this one just looks really cool this might be my favourite one. It's certainly better than the next one we get, when they basically just do the Teletubbies thing. I think, and this is skipping ahead an entire season, I think Series 7 is pretty good for a series that wasn't actually meant to exist. Yeah. However, we are right at the beginning of Series 6. It may be the era of Dom and Friends. Video games may have actually, to a degree, taken a back seat, but we've still got some amazing challenges and some amazing games featured coming up. We really do as well. And fans of Series 1 and Series 2 will be thrilled to know the Dublon Tundras are back. And like Games Master, they keep on coming. Welcome to a brand new series of Games Master. Other shows may come and go. We just keep on coming. Which is why I'd like to start by introducing you to Teresa and Leanne, and my two mermaid helpers for this series. Good evening, ladies. Hi. <laughs> what are you looking forward to the most about this series? Um, what I'm looking forward to mainly is seeing all the smiling faces on the children around. <laughs> I'm looking forward to the violent games where people chop people's heads off. <laughs> Why mermaids, I hear you ask? Well, observant people who pay close attention to expensive opening title sequences may have sussed we are in Atlantis. Because this episode is littered with them. It is awash with entendre debris lapping up at the shores of this Atlantean set. And I guess, should we just get into the show? I think we should as well, because, yeah, Dominic has his intro here where he says, other shows come and go, and we just keep on coming. And my first night was, oh, so it's going to be one of those series, is it? And he introduces us to his mermaid helpers, Teresa and Leanne, who mysteriously look a lot like the angels from last season, <laughs> but with fish costumes. And they immediately get more to do than they did as angels. That's exactly what I had here. They've given, been given characters now. They're not just there to be pretty faces. They have two different personalities, and that's the gag. Yeah, I, I mean, they're no goblins. 
You know, because no. oh god, no. Well, no one will ever beat the goblins. Yeah, goblins for life. They're looking forward to the smiling faces of the children on one hand, and on the other, wanton gore and dismemberment. It's weird because they're more like Angel and Devil, the mermaids, but I'm gonna roll with it because their delivery is brilliant. So Leanne is the good. Yeah, she is the blonde and light one, yes. And Teresa is the darker, but still kind of innocent one. It's kind of like, well, I'm into dismemberment. In a later episode, admits to geriatricide, and, but doesn't just doesn't see anything wrong with it. Yeah, but it's also, it's the two sides of gaming as well. We've got our nice games on the Nintendo 64 and Resident Evil and Doom on the other side. But Luke, why mermaids? Well, we've got mermaids here because, as Dom explains, we are now in Atlantis. And very specifically says, that is what this stage is called. The stage is called Atlantis. We're in Atlantis, in a studio. Ignore the studio lights. For new viewers, I should point out that we deal in video games and new entertainment technology. Between now and February, at least 30 extremely famous people will be coming on the show, laughing at everything I say and performing video game challenges while trying to retain an ounce of credibility. We also get confirmation of this shift in modus operandi because when he spells out what this series is for newcomers, he doesn't just say the latest video games. He says we deal with video games and new entertainment technology. It's always done that. We've had homes of the future. We've had internet gaming. But this is actually the first time I think it's been spelled out to this degree and also emphasised. And right from this first episode, we see it, particularly as Dom is off on his travels again, Luke. We talked about this a little bit in Series 5, how there were a lot of features on things that weren't really video game related. And those were the, the ones I didn't like quite as much. But like now that this show is kind of spelling out this is what it is, it now feels like it's more of a complete thing. And so that when they do features like the one that we get later on in this episode, it doesn't feel so out of place, as opposed to it would have done in series four and five, where it was like, no, no, this is a video game challenge TV show. But also we get acknowledged the other key component. It's not even challenges with punters. No, it's at least 30 celebrity chumps who will be on the show laughing at all of Dom's jokes and performing gaming challenges. I also really like as well that at the end of this episode, like, here's what's coming up in next week's episode, which is a very series two thing as well. We haven't had that for a while now where they're like, here is the celebrity guest on next week's episode. So this feels like a much tighter and complete production than we've had for maybe the last couple of series. It's got a fully formed identity. They know what they're doing. They've got their plan. Dominic clearly has quite a degree of control over everything. Therefore, he's happy with it. And they've got a relatively tight-knit crew? I say relatively because, of course, there's a bandana-wearing elephant in the room. We'll get there. (laughs) Oh, we'll get to it. We are on the countdown to it. We are nine episodes away from that happening. Ash, in the time that we've had away, you know, we've just done our monthly recap, our almost week-by-week recap of what happened in between series, but there has been some pretty big news in between series five and series six, and it's going to be featured a lot in this series, The Nintendo 64 is here, but not in the UK. Yes, the biggest news since we were last on air has been the Japanese and American release of the Nintendo 64. The most powerful games console yet produced has been selling many, many, many units since its launch, but unfortunately for us, Europe seems to come rather low on Nintendo's priorities. The machine won't be available here until April and will be sold at 250 quid, over 100 notes more than Yankblokes are paying for it. Yep. We cover the state of gaming at the moment, and really, 
They say the state of gaming, it's a one machine news article. It's all about the Nintendo 64, the Japanese launch, the American launch, the fact that we are lower on the priority. We're going to have to wait an extra six months to get our hands on the console legitimately. So, because, you know, you can import it unless you're a marketing manager where you're not allowed to. Not a journalist, I'm a marketing manager. Well, I'm pretty sure if you tried to go into a shop to import uh, import Nintendo 64, they have to ask you a series of questions. When you reply to them that your job title is a marketing manager, they're like, not for you. You've got to wait till April, mate. Here's the 3DO and Way of the Warrior. <laughs> have at it. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's mad, isn't it? Because we get so much N64 in this, not just in terms of challenges, but reviews and news. The Nintendo 64 is not going to be out until after this series has finished. Which is crazy because we are getting challenges out of the wazoo on the Nintendo 64. Exactly. I would argue this is the most an import console has ever featured on Games Master. It's because they thought it was going to be out. I, I, th- I mean, I, I think they would have done it anyway because it's the brand new thing. But I really think they were sat there being like, oh, this will be out by Christmas. Yeah. Not only do we have to wait six months, Luke, it's also going to cost us a considerable chunk more than our American compatriots because it's going to retail over here without a game for £250. That's 100 quid more than US. Yeah, and that copy of Mario 64, if you can get one, will be 60 notes. And coincidentally, we're going to take a brief trip to the October issue of Games Master magazine because Nintendo's pricing is front and centre on the network news page because this was written just before the American launch. And it says, Nintendo joined price drop frenzy, cheap N64 ready for US launch. As the US launch of the Nintendo 64 draws ever closer, Nintendo have joined Sony and Sega in a price war by dropping the retail price of the N64 from $249 to $199 before it's even launched. A source at Nintendo claims they are drawing a line in the sand. In other words, they're sticking the Vs up at Sega and Sony as matching their price will seriously hurt their competitors' two 32-bit machines. However, rumours have already started concerning a potential price drop again from either Sega, Sony or both to fight back against Nintendo. Sony have already slightly reduced their price in Japan to the equivalent of $183 US dollars. In the US, all the major chains have been told to start taking pre-orders again as Nintendo claimed that they will be able to fulfil the initial demand. They plan to ship a million units between the launch on September 30th and March 31st, 1997. In Japan, the demand for the machine has started to drop off, but this is more likely to be down to the lack of new software than a genuine feeling of discontent with the hardware. So now we wait with bated breath to see how Sega and Sony react to a Mario-wielding machine at the same price as their own. Expect more price wars soon. Now, it's interesting that Nintendo have asked retailers to go start taking pre-orders again, and I'm wondering if that's because they have just gone balls to Europe. Well, let's just focus on Japan, let's focus on America, and we'll do Europe later. Yeah, because if they can just push all their production to machines for essentially the NTSC territories, it means that they can actually get that big push in for Christmas because that's what it is now for Nintendo, particularly for North America. They're launching at the end of September. They need to make sure that in addition to people buying it on day one, that parents are getting it for their kids for Christmas. And in fairness to Nintendo, I can see why they would do that as well because Nintendo, like the NES, massive in Japan, massive in america was outsold by the master system here in the uk 
the Super Nintendo, massive in Japan, massive in America, competing with the Genesis, here there was kind of like a mix of the two. Like it was very much Sega as Nintendo, or like going to the 80s, it's home computers, it's Amigas, and it's now here in the UK particularly, it's PCs. So if you're kind of looking at it from a history perspective, you'd be like, yeah, I guess Europe just aren't into our products as much as Japan and America are. So let's just focus our efforts first there, and then we can launch in Europe later. Only three games are available as yet, but there are plenty more in the pipeline. Competing with Virtua Fighter and Tekken is Killer Instinct Gold, an update of the Killer Instinct 2 arcade machine featuring up to 90 hit combos. Also from Rare is Blast Core, which is a get in heavy machinery and demolish everything type situation. The first Doomstar shoot'em up will be Turok Dinosaur Hunter, which bizarrely enough involves hunting dinosaurs and bearing the name of Turok. And we get a look at some new games coming out for the N64, including Killer Instinct Gold, Blast Core, and making its debut on the podcast, Turok Dinosaur Hunter. Now, let's let's skim over Killer Instinct Gold for now, because, spoilers, that's a big part of next week's show. Sure, it certainly is, yeah. However, Blast Core. I bloody love Blast Core. Also, two of these titles, rare titles, because, of course, Killer Instinct Gold, a rare title, Blast Core, it's another one by Rare. It's also quite a unique game because I guess a lot like Pilot Wings, it's not a traditional shoot 'em up, it's not a traditional racing game. You have to essentially clear a path for a runaway kind of a nuclear missile carrier. So you're having to destroy buildings, you've got different vehicles you can do that with. I don't know if it truly shows off the power of the Nintendo 64 but it certainly feels fresh and different and takes advantage of the Nintendo 64 controller. And reviews were generally positive when it came out. They praised the variety. The graphics did come under some praise. However, the game does get quite repetitive as time goes on because really, you're just clearing a path. That's kind of it. And the other game featured here is that first big shoot-em-up for the Nintendo 64. And I actually was surprised it was this early in the N64 timeline. I thought this was actually a bit later, but it is Turok Dinosaur Hunter, um, based on the Valiant comic of the same name that Acclaim had essentially bought up. They bought Valiant Comics in, in 1994, and this was one of those ideas of, this will be a big multimedia project. We will release a game on the 64, we'll have a line of action figures, we'll have a line of t-shirts, we'll do comics from with valiance and things like that this is hilarious of acclaim as well so what happened was acclaim bought valiant comics in 1994 clearly they were riding on a high then they fell into massive financial issues and that just delayed a lot of turok because this game was announced in 1994 and they just suffered a cash flow problem due to falling sales and they had to like rely on turok being a financial hit because they were like, if this doesn't work, then we may completely go under. Like the company in 1996 lost $222 million, uh, which was compared to like, you know, like $162 million the year before that. And they would made like $567 million profit the previous year. Like they had just lost and were losing money and losing money. But thankfully, Turok was a hit. And it was very, very praised when it came out. Uh, although, Ash, you know, I said earlier that like it was 60 quid for Mario 64. Turok was sold on release at 70 quid. I don't think I bought this at launch because I definitely didn't spend 70 quid on it. I think I did get it secondhand like a couple of months later. I really enjoyed Turok Dinosaur Hunter. It was a game that used fog as a way to hide kind of, I guess, limitations of the game. But they weren't clever about it like Silent Hill were. Turok, still great game though. Mm -hmm. Absolutely wonderful, great fun. 
poor acclaim, the highs that they had of the early 90s. Like, you know, we were talking about acclaim just a few series ago. They were the people that released Mortal Kombat. You know, they didn't make it, but they did publish it. And they published NBA Jam. Like, they had some really big titles in the 16-bit era, just fell on really hard times come 1994, 95. Turok sold amazingly well, 1.5 million copies, I think, was the overall sale. We had a sequel, Turok 2, Seeds of Evil, a prequel, Turok Evolution in 2002, and those well-known corpse reanimators of the video game world, Night Dive Studios, have released a remastered version that can be out for Windows since about 2015, also out on Xbox, also on the Nintendo Switch. You can go back and play the remastered version of Turok on the Nintendo Switch now, and even on the PlayStation. You can go and get this for the PS4, Luke, as a digital download. From Nintendo itself come three updates on some old classics. Star Fox 64, in which our furry forest friends clamber into spaceships and engage in interplanetary war. Kirby's Air Ride features everyone's favourite shapeless pink ball. And the one we're all dying to play, Super Mario Kart 64, which, if it's even half as good as the SNES version, will be twice as good as Hepatitis. Other games featured here include Star Fox 64, Kirby's Air Ride, and Mario 64, which are all the Nintendo-based properties. And Mario Kart 64 is the one they're like, this is the game that we want to play. Yeah, I mean, you may want to play Kirby's Air Ride. Spoilers, you're not going to get to. It's amazing that it's still being featured here. I actually love the fact that it's still being featured here. Like when it was in Series 5, you're like, oh, okay, well, that makes sense because it's from, you know, that that showcase. We're like, here's all the sites we're working on. The console's out now, and we're st- and they're still like, "Hey, Kirby's Air Ride is still on its way, guys." I mean, you will you will technically get to play it eventually, like five years after this series goes off the air, yeah, on a completely different console. Although worth noting, it was the first GameCube title to support local LAN link up via the network adapter for the GameCube. You could hook up up to four. GameCubes and play this game full multi-screen multi-monitor. Never mind have the difficulty of having to have two PlayStations and two televisions and a link cable. This one, you need to understand computer networking, Luke. <laughs> but the game on everyone's lips at the moment is Mario 64, what some are calling the greatest game ever written. So perhaps maybe we should have a challenge on it. What are we playing, Games Master? Greetings, everybody, and welcome to my deep sea domain. My first challenge couldn't be on anything but Mario 64 on the Nintendo 64. And I prepared a particularly difficult task to get things rolling. First, my hapless contestant must negotiate the formidable platform perils of the final level in which nerves of steel are required if he's to avoid falling to his doom. Next, I'm assuming he's still alive, he must take on the awesome spectacle of Bowser, the game's final opponent, and a creature armed with an array of unpleasant weapons. I'll give my contestant three minutes to complete both parts of the challenge, a measly amount that leaves little room for error. Weird little thing I noticed. They show the Mario 64 title screen, except it's not. That is not a Mario 64 title screen from any finished version of the game. This bugged me because I looked at it and I'm like, that doesn't look right. The font doesn't look right on the 64. And so I'm assuming this is from an early beta build or from a demo video that was released to kind of show off the game. And I actually did go online and look at one of these sites that compares all the differences between the different versions of Mario 64. Because even between Japan and Europe, there were changes made, including bug fixes and stuff like that. But no released version of Mario 64 has had a title screen that looks like that. This must have just been like from that showcase they had in Japan back in Series 5. 
that they've just got the the video footage of there because that also had like different graphics direct throughout the game and stuff i mean like hud graphics uh so it must be like that they've just got sat in the archives when they're like hey we need to input a mario 64 thing let's go to what we've got all of our mario 64 footage grab that pop it in so what this game has been out in north america for less than a month we're starting at the end spoilers I, I don't. Know. I cannot remember if I'd have been pissed off at this or not because it's like, mate, this is how the game ends. Well, we we fun enough. We had a conversation similar to this with series two when one of the games master like consultation zone bits was someone asking like, how do you beat the final boss in Zelda: Link to the Past? And they show you how to beat the final boss and then show you the ending of the game. I mean, they at least here they do not do that. They're just kind of like, boom, okay, final hit game over spoilers he does do it that's it they don't actually show you any of the story and even if they did it's a japanese copy of the game and apparently all the dialogue is a joke about a previous host of games master it is uh, quite a tough challenge as well because this is getting through not the full final level but you've got to get through most of the final level and beat bowser in three minutes and i love the fact that this is a challenge that's split into two halves so our first half is just doing the level and then later on in the show, the guy comes back to finish off the challenge. Kind of like what we had with VR Cycle and the uh, the Namco Akira arcade game, I can't remember what it's called now. Where it's like, it's a challenge that meets a challenge. It's a bit Series 3 in a way. I would say it's one up on the Namco kind of Mr. Motivator challenge because he has a set amount of time to do this challenge. It's three minutes total. And he only has the time left at the end of that first challenge to complete the second bit. So really, there's a real canny canty. The tension is so much better than a lot of the other split challenges because really, he could have ended the first half of this challenge doomed to fail on the second one. If it had taken him two minutes 30, oh, it would have been a weird end to the episode because he'd have started that second half knowing he could not do it. Yeah, I mean, he loses 10 seconds immediately just from a cutscene. But who do we have to play this, Luke? What god of fashion do we have to show us his gaming skills. So, please welcome our first contestant of the series, Mr. Nathan Souch. Uh, young man, I do like your apparel. Uh, what kind of message are you trying to give us about Nathan Souch with that outfit? Look at me, love me, adore me. <laughs> now, you're a carpenter, Nathan. I would never have put you down as a carpenter. Why is that? I, I would have thought you're kind of either club DJ or Petty criminal or something, do you know what I mean? You've got that kind of trendy yet dangerous look. Now, you bought an N64 and import. Yeah. How much did it cost you? £300. £300. Some people have been paying up for like 700 800 didn't they, when yeah, it first came yeah. out? Was it, has it been worth your £300 wad? Definitely. Yeah? Definitely, yeah. Okay. Well, he's no marketing manager because this is Nathan Souch, who has got an import of the Nintendo 64 and Mario 64, whose vibe is, look at me, love me, adore me. I laughed at this. This guy is absolutely great. And Dom is in love with his style, but also shocked because Nathan is a carpenter. And we don't mean one of those singers. We mean he works with wood, Luke. He's used to having wood in his hands. He certainly is well, whereas like Dom thought he'd be a DJ or a, quote, petty criminal, which Nathan, I love Nathan's reaction to that. It was really funny. But clearly, times are good in the carpentry world because he was able to pay 300 quid for his N64 on import when it came out, which is actually not that bad because some people were paying six to 800. That's it. Like, Dom seems really surprised about it. I think Dom was expecting him to say, like, 
600 quid, 700 quid or whatever it was. He's like, no, I got it for 300 notes. And I was like, wow, like, I've heard people pay 700 quid for imports. It was like a real Dominic Diamond stopped being a host of a TV show and just became someone who was chatting to someone down a pub to be like, oh, really? Like a, a video game fan who just heard something really interesting. We, we don't go into where he got it from. It certainly wasn't from Special Reserve. Did he actually just go, I guess, the smart route of just getting someone to bring it back from Japan? Because that, then yeah. that would have done it. Yeah, absolutely. I don't know. That, that makes the most sense to me because I can't imagine there are many places that have got import copies of Nintendo 64s that are selling them for the 300 quid at this point in time. Okay, in Series 1, he was plain old Kirk Ewing. This series, he is plain old Kirk Ewing from Viz. Congratulations on getting employment, Kirk. Thank you very much. Let's hope it lasts. Okay, now, Mario, the possessor of a very fine moustache. Indeed. Kirk, how important is facial hair in the 90s? Well, facial hair is very important in the 90s. And, of course, Mario is sporting a fine moustache, as popularised by David Seaman. And many of our nation's police force. Yes. Okay, Kirk, um, the, the first part of this challenge, platform-orientated. What tips can you give Nathan? Well, this is the platform game of the moment. The best tip I can give him at the moment is to uh, try and use the camera well so that you can see around the various platforms because it can be a bit tricky in the perspective and you obviously want to see where you're going. Kirk Ewing is back and he is in the commentary booth and as you mentioned earlier, he's now got an actual job. Now, I did have to check this because I'm like, Kirk's working for Viz? Well, that makes sense, but it's not that Viz. It's not V-I-Z. It's VIS, VIS Entertainment Limited. It was founded in 1996 by Chris Van Der Kuehl, alongside some former staff from DMA Design, as well as other techie people from outside the video game industry, and was based up in Scotland. And it produced a number of games, most of which weren't that great. And actually, by 2005, they'd entered administration and were shut down. But hey, on the plus side, he's got a job now. Kirk's got a job, everyone. As opposed to being on Games Master, which is... I don't know. He basically got a gig through knowing Dominic Diamond. It wasn't quite a job. It was just a bit of a jolly. Here, he's actually, he's a working man now that has taken some time out from that job to come and film Games Master. Luke, it's Games Master. Dominic's here. Kirk's here. Of course, we're going to talk about hair, specifically facial hair. Well, it is the topic of conversation at the moment because Euro 96 have just finished and David Seaman was our goalkeeper of choice for the England team who was sporting a wonderful moustache at that point just like Mario does in this game. I just wanted to point out how meta we've got because we had, in the 1990s, two bearded men talking about the importance of facial hair, which is now being discussed in 2022 by two bearded men. Welcome to podcasting. In fact, I'm just realising that we are you are the Dom of the of the hair equivalent and I'm the Kirk. Well, we did say when we were talking about doing, you know, costumes and stuff for live shows, I was like, well, I can do later era Dom very easily because I've already got the Dominic Diamond hair and beard style. I just need to wear some glasses and find myself a green suit. Kirk clearly loves this game. Spoilers for when we get to the Dave Perry episode. <laughs> <laughs> I was about to say, no shit. <laughs> Because Kirk's like, well, here's what you need to do in order to complete this. It's a very tough challenge. It's all about the perspective. Use that camera to help you out here. This is the platform game of the moment. When Dom had that line where he's like, some people are calling it the best game ever written, that is what Kirk has said to him. Yeah. Anyway, Nathan gets off to a cracking start here because he finds, I mean, I say he finds, he knew it was there, a wonderful little shortcut that probably saves him about a good 20 seconds or so. And he is racing through this including running through fire a proper vindaloo experience yeah he's speed running he's taking that hit damage just to keep the time down and he is making great progress he is well rehearsed 
He knows this route because technically it is a shortcut, but also it's bloody tricky, this section. There's a lot of climbing. There's a lot of rotating hazards. There's a lot of enemies to dodge. There's projectiles. He knows the timing. He knows where he can afford to take a hit, where he can't. And there is virtually nothing negative to say about this performance, because even if he takes damage, it feels deliberate and he still ends the first part of the challenge with full health and manages it in one minute 52. Kirk said he needed to do part one in under two minutes. He's done it in under two minutes by at least eight seconds. Yeah, it was a really, really good performance because right, like there's a lot of quite literally moving parts to this level. There's a lot of navigating around various different moving platforms, swinging platforms, this and the other. There are so many platforms that Dom and Kirk run out of ways to describe platforms. There's literally a point in this where Dom says, "Don't tell me, it's more platforms." Of this section, another sliding platform. Another sliding platform. This one comes out up to the top of the pole, and yet another sliding platform. Just like you experience in the daylight. Okay. <laughs> He is just evading little black bomb guys and everything. Yep. On yet now, don't tell me it's some more revolving platforms, Scott. You've got it. Some more checking revolving platforms, this time revolving. And, uh, <laughs> and yeah, another set. Yep, this okay. is just what we expect. We've had it before. When someone is being really good at a game, there's bollock all to say. You need them to make mistakes to make it interesting. But I'm glad he didn't because it was just brilliant to see. Yeah, so he has now made that three. It would have actually done it slightly quicker, but he sort of messed up his jump at the end through the pipe and did a bum drop instead. But he has made it through. He has finished this section of the challenge and we're going to get the second half of it later on in the episode. Because for now, with Kirk resting his hand on Dom's shoulder, Kirk is very touchy-feely because he feels up Dom's moustache earlier as well, but he's much more kind of like pally. Oh, you can tell they're such good friends. Like, because anything that Kirk says, Dom is busting a gut laughing at him. But it's one part of the show that's been with us throughout the entire run. It's the reviews. No longer do you have to go to Thailand with middle-class kids to enjoy jet skiing. You can invite them to your council estate and do it there with Waybracer 64. There are three main styles of play inside Waybracer 64. There's the two-player split-screen mode, where you frantically race around in a very Mario Kart style There's also points attack, where you have giant rubber rings that you have to sail through and occasionally go over cannon stunts just to earn yourself points. And then there's finally Time Attack, where you just basically race around any set course just to beat your own lap time. The problem is there's not so much of a feeling that you must break all your lap times. And in two-player mode, it's not really as much fun as it could have been. It's just you and your friend driving around and around a course. It's not to say it's bad, it's still brilliant and it's really good fun. But it's just not going to keep you going as long as some of the really, really hot race games. Now, quite clearly, these reviews were supposed to be done by Rick and Dave in the same way they were done in Series 5. However, something happens in Series 6, which means that Dave Perry is unavailable to do the reviews that are done like after the shooting and everything. So instead, our duo for this series is Rick Henderson and Ed Lomas from CVG. Who is a perfectly fine a nice individual. He knows what he's talking about games-wise, so it's absolutely fine. It's still the same two talking heads. It's just the thing that's missing is the kind of yin-yang that Dave and Rick had. I think as well, like, this is, you know, Ed's first TV thing that he's done as well. So he's a bit, like, you can tell he's nervy in front of camera. He's sort of like, some, he doesn't have the confidence that Dave Perry has got because Dave's been doing this since series one. 
So this is very much, you know, first time on camera. And he, I think he does very well for that. Like, it's, it doesn't completely freeze or anything, but he doesn't have quite the polish that, say, like Rick has had or like, you know, Jazz Rignall had or Dave Perry had. Our first game we've got here is Wave Race 64, which we did discuss back in the, uh, the, the, the N64 release. But it's here that we get more of the filthy humor of Series 5 because Rick does a cunning stunts joke. I was shocked by that. Exactly. So was I. This is half past six on Channel 4. I never got Wave Race. I never, I don't think I ever owned it. Or if I did, it was fairly late and maybe just an unboxed kind of cart only copy. I mean, don't get me wrong, it looks nice enough. I know when we talked about it before, we talked how originally it was meant to be kind of like F-Zero type boats, so kind of like futuristic boats with transforming abilities. Then it became basically jet skis, fairly similar to something we see in the Celebrity Challenge coming up a little bit later. The controls are great. The water looks great. It's certainly the best kind of water dynamics we've ever seen on a home console. But it has its flaws, and they are raised here, is that you've got these different modes. You've got your standard race. You've got multiplayer racing. There's a point attack. There's a time attack. You can go for rings. You can go for stunts. And the problem is, is while there are those modes, there's no impetus to keep going back to them. There's no unlockables. There's nothing kind of like, there's no kind of progression or extra things to be revealed. It's pretty much what it says on the tin. For me, I think the most disappointing thing with Wave Race 64 is that it's only a two-player game. Like, there's four control ports on the front of an N64, but this is only a two-player racing game. When you kind of think of, like, you know, the really fun multiplayer stuff you get with the N64, it is that four-player mechanic. You have four-player Mario Kart. It's four-player Goldeneye, four-player Mario Party, this, that, and the other, right? I think just having two players here when there are literally two other ports sat there for other controls to be plugged into feels like a bit of a missed opportunity. I bet you it's all down to the water physics. If yeah, they'd not is. gone for the water simulation, they could have had four players. Yeah, Rick and Ed kind of uh, say what you were just talking about there. Like, you know, there's some good modes in this and the other, but there's no real need to continue playing it. Like, you know, Ed even says, yeah, it's brilliant. It's just not as good as the other top racing games that are out there at the moment. 85%, though, strong score for it. Although 70 quid on import. Yeesh. Pricey. And finally, a quick look at the game which drew its inspiration from those classic Claire Rayner ads, Pilot Wing 64. As with the original Super Nintendo Pilot Wings, the idea of Pilot Wing 64 is to complete set missions. There are about 27 in total, covering three different contraptions. You've got the jetpack, the gyrocopter, and the hang glider. The problem I have with Pilot Wings 64, though, is the graphics themselves. They're not very good, not in comparison with other N64 games. But the gameplay is so superb and so engrossing that it really doesn't matter. I kind of disagree with Rick on this one because I think the graphics are very stylized, but they are good because also this is essentially an open world game because you can just get in and fly around the island. You know, there's all these different areas you can do stuff in. You've got your hang glider, your rocket pack, your gyrocopter. There's also a kind of a Birdman thing. There's, there's extra bits and pieces in there and like a cannon and, and whatnot. It also means that there's like lots of hidden things to find around the island. Like I've watched quite a few videos of people playing this online where they are like, you know, finding hidden caves and stuff and hidden coves around the island that you can fly into and pick up some extra stuff or find like extra missions and things like that. So I think it is bigger than what they might be saying here. But maybe that's a case of they only got it for 10, 15 minutes but then, and then had to go and like, you know, record a review of it. The first Pilot Wings on the snares will always be my favourite. It's, it's the one I spent the most time with. And I think it was also 
Because it was mission-based, it was the most pure. But I've still got a lot of time for Pilot Wing 64. I still think it's a lot of fun. It's actually reviewed in Games Master Magazine because Games Master Magazine has a little insert section of 64 fan, the UK's first dedicated Nintendo 64 magazine. And they review Pilot Wing 64. And Luke, they have a unique scoring system. In, in what way? Well, gameplay is rated out of 50. Game life is rated out of 20. Audio is rated out of 15. And visuals are rated out of 15, which means overall you get a rating out of 100. Okay, so gameplay is the most important thing. So that's that's pretty interesting. So graphics and sound are like the least important part of this. It's, it's actually more about the gameplay and its lifespan. That is a needlessly complicated system. But I actually think it is needlessly complicated. However, if I was going to make a needlessly complicated system, I'd probably make it like this as well. Because as we said, following a Claire Rayner joke, Ed gives us the details saying there's 27 missions, various levels. Rick follows this by saying, as you pointed out, issues with the graphics. However, he says the gameplay is so good, he can overlook that. And yet, it only gets 80%. Based on the comments that they made, I was kind of unsurprised at the score. But I I was surprised at the score only because I thought that people liked this game more than they did. Like it was going to get higher than Wave Race 64, if you kind of get what I mean. Yeah. A over in 64 fan with their rating system, which they call End Sequence. They've got a style they're going for. They're really starting off strong. I like that name. Gameplay, 45 out of 50. Seems simplistic at first, but rapidly opens out in the finest tradition of Nintendo. Game life, 16 out of 20. The original Pilot Wings got boring quite soon, but that shouldn't happen here. I would disagree with that one. Audio, 12 out of 15. Slightly annoying tunes, but perfectly atmospheric sound effects. I do like that screaming sound effect. That is fun. Oh, yeah. Visuals. 13 out of 15. Breathtaking. Bodes well for the future of the Nintendo 64. Can't wait for Wave Race 64 now. Overall, a accurate 86%, saying a terrifying demonstration of the 64's powers and underneath a challenging long-term game. Second in the series and another landmark for Nintendo. How will they follow this? So that kind of goes against with what Rick was saying, where he said like the graphics aren't all that good. They're there saying like they look absolutely stunning. So that's, and that's an issue. An 86 is more in line with what I thought the game would get on Games Master. Thing is, as much as I love both the Pilot Wings games, I would say 86 to 88 is fair for both of them because they're not everyone's cup of tea. It's a, it is a casual flight simulator. It's not your full blown Microsoft where you've got your yokes and your pedals and the need for wearing a little hat. It's fun flight sim. And you can find out more information about those games and Games Master in general over at channel4.com. Plug in the website again. And whilst we're back from the reviews, Mario 64 is going to elude us a while longer because, hey, we need one of those 30 celebrities to come on and laugh at Dom's jokes. Yeah, because as Dom says himself, he basically is using the celebrity challenges this era to meet attractive ladies, even though regulation says he's not really allowed to. So they have to have a spurious reason, and winning a joystick is that spurious reason. So let's head over for our celebrity challenge. What are we playing, Games Master? I've always enjoyed water sports, so I thought I'd indulge myself on the brand new arcade title, Aquajet. Perched precariously on an alarmingly realistic Aquajet, my contestant will speed toward the finishing line, while the pressure seconds run out. Time extensions are available along the way, as are a number of spectacular jumps. 
and contestants should avail themselves of both if that's to avoid an early bath. Fuck me, and you thought the cunning stunts joke was bad. I know, right? Like, this is Patrick Morse in there being like, I do love water sports. Piss play. <laughs> Empty your bladder on me. Oh, that's becoming an out-of-context soundbite, Luke. <laughs> <laughs> but very simple challenge. Get over the finish line before the time runs out. Whilst we've just seen Wave Race 64, and you'd have thought this would have been the perfect opportunity to continue the Nintendo 64 love-in, it's not. We're actually going for the very big and arcade-like Aquajet from Namco. So, I've got two reasons as to why I think that is. One, Wave Race 64 wasn't available when they filmed the series. Two, and I think this is probably more key, this actually has Samantha Fox standing up so you can see her bum. If she was sat down with a joystick, you can't see that bit. I would also go three. It's more of a spectacle. It's a big arcade thing, yeah. Yes. Yeah, I mean, spoilers. Dom has been studying this celebrity's presence since he was a small child. It's Samantha Fox. It gives me especially great pleasure to introduce today's guest because I feel like I've grown up with this woman uh, from uh, when I was a very, very young man. I have studied her career very, very closely indeed. Please welcome Sam Fox. Yeah. Sam. Thank you. It's a pleasure to have you. Hey, thanks for having me. If it's not too premature to say that. <laughs> Sam, uh, there are two big aspects to your career. Yes, uh, there certainly is. You've got the, the modelling and the singing. I want to talk about the singing. You are huge all over the world. Where are your biggest? Um, I would say America is probably my biggest market. Yeah. Japan, um, France. Do you have to translate <laughs> the names of your singles in different countries? In some cases, um, with certain records I do, for certain territories I do the choruses in their language, uh -huh. like in French or even sometimes I've attempted Japanese. So do you want it, to give us a burst of any of those? Well, I know like uh, Konnichiwa, which is um, hello. Hello, yeah. Have you had a song called Hello? No, I haven't actually, but maybe we should do one together. Hello, we could do Lionel Richie. Konnichiwa. Konnichiwa. Is it me you're looking for? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, and I could say yeah. Just a little thought of. Okay, let's, um, you're playing the Aquajet today, I Sam. Am. Is this the first time you've participated in water sports? Um, no, I actually do jet ski when I go on holiday. I love uh -huh. that. This is the first time, obviously, I've been on a machine like this. I hope it's very similar. Yes, I'm sure he has. We, of course, are talking about Samantha Fox, a.k.a. pop singer, former glamour model, basically started her glamour model career at 16 and ended up being the page three girl. She started there in 1983. Yeah. Boy, this is uncomfortable in hindsight. It's the sun, isn't it? Like this is, this was their bread and butter for a long time. You'd think that, oh, you know, it was just the, the style of the time. It's the 1980s and this, that and the other. But I was talking with a friend yesterday about, you know, the movie The Hole? Yeah. Like the, the horror movie. That has got Kira Knightley in it topless, and she was 15 when that film was made. Ugh. So, like, you know, it, shit like this happened years and years and years. It's only until, like, more recent times that we've actually took a step back and be like, hold on, this, this actually feels a bit wrong. She was entered into the competition that led to page three by her mother. She appeared in The Sun via parental consent, and she made her final appearance on page three in 1986. She retired from page three at like age 20, mm. which is weird. She transitioned to pop music. She released her first single, Touch Me, I Want Your Body, in March 1986. It got to number one in Australia, Canada, Finland, Greece, Norway, Portugal, Sweden and Switzerland. Became her first of three top 10 singles on the UK singles chart. Never quite reached number one, though.
Her first album was also called Touch Me that was released later in 1986, which was followed by a self-titled album and another in 1988 called I Want to Have Some Fun, each containing a number of international hit singles, which is something she does touch upon during her interview with Dom. She also crossed over into acting with mixed success and ended up kind of suing her father or kind of splitting, estranging from her parents because it looks like he'd embezzled over a million pounds from her accounts during her peak years when he was still a guardian. Yeah, it's, it's a bit like a Britney Spears type situation where sort of like, because, you know, she started her career at such a young age, parents kind of control what she was doing. And then there's all like the legal ramifications of trying to get out of that so you are considered to be an adult now with your own interests. Her personal life is a little bit more interesting. And as it is her personal life, I will skim over it. Uh, she had a, a number of different relationships throughout her time, including with a career criminal, uh, with Paul Stanley of KISS. But rumours were abound for years regarding her sexuality and the fact that she'd actually been in a, may have been in a long-term relationship with a former lead guitarist of the band Girls School. And turns out, yes, she had actually been in a relationship with a woman. In fact, their relationship lasted for 16 years until her partner sadly died of cancer. Fox said, people say I'm gay. All I know is that I'm in love with Myra, who was her partner, and I love her completely and want to spend the rest of my life with her. She'd been reluctant to come out for a number of reasons, including fan behaviour, public backlash. And it's something she's actually talked about in numerous interviews in that it seemed easier for men to come out while they still got persecuted and still got problems. But there were gay men in the public eye. Gay women? Less so. Less so, particularly like 80s, 90s, into the aughts and things like that. It just wasn't as prevalent as it is now. Industry by industry as well. Like in pop music, gay men are much more prevalent and are much more out and proud about it. But within football, for example, it is very much not like, you know, a player came out recently is like, oh, I'm gay. And it's like, oh, it's one of the first, you know, publicly facing gay footballers. And you're like, are you trying to tell me that every single footballer is a straight man? Because I, I find that hard to believe. They're actually just more closeted because of the way that football fans are and the way that football is perceived. And it was the same with women in the 90s and in the, in the 80s and stuff. It just wasn't as seen as a, and I hate to use the term, quote unquote, a regular thing. Like yeah. if, you, if you came out as a gay woman, you would just be like labeled as something else. And you would just be like, you know, this, that and the other. And I think that she just made the choice not to give herself those labels. Because I watched a couple of more recent interviews with her. And one quote I did take away and I just made a note of is, she says, I still avoid labels and you can't choose who you fall in love with. That's exactly it. What a, what a beautiful way to put it as well. But right here, right now, she is still to a degree Sam Fox, the former glamour model, Sam Fox, the then pop star, and she is still presenting externally as heterosexual. Exactly. Yeah. Like all the jokes that Dom is making are about that essentially. And like, you know, we, you talked through our albums and stuff there. By the 80s, she'd released three albums, then released an album in 91. Then took a bit of a time off and stuff. I think she probably was just doing a lot of touring and stuff, a lot of like personal appearances and things like that. But she is probably at this point here either working on or is already recording her next album because she has an album come out in 97 called 21st Century Fox. I see what you did there. That's a great title. <laughs> it's a great title, yeah. Uh, I mean, it doesn't perform particularly well uh, here in the UK. Like, She released some singles off it, but the highest performing of that was Let Me Be Free, which placed 188th in the UK Top 40. There was a time when we did all the things we wanted. 
But when she comes on here, she gets the full slow motion intro, hair bobbing in a breeze and everything. And oh God, if you'll excuse the expression, the entendres start to come thick and fast. Dom's first line is, it's a pleasure to have you if it's not too premature to say that. And then follows up by saying, I want to talk about the two big aspects of her career. And my exact note on that line was, fuck's sake. Yeah, well, he then followed that up with, where are you biggest? Bloody hell, Dom. <laughs> Jesus I, Christ. I can't work out if Sam is playing along or just being very patient. It feels like she, at the various times she is giving it back as much as she's getting. Well, I, I think she is having fun with it to that degree, but like a lot of the polite laughter really does feel like a... I, I know what I'm expecting here. Like, this is like a lot of the lad interviews that I have done over the last few years and are probably only going to get more as they come. Like, you know, I would imagine, considering that she started this when she was 16 years old with the, with the Sun and the News of the World and of all places, she is used to this sort of banter and knows how to deal with it. But she does actually, when, when Dom is saying, where are you biggest? She does give a full answer and it is very much in line with what, we just talked about earlier where she goes, well, America's my biggest market, Japan, France. And she also goes into the details, little things which people don't always realise happens, which is she records different versions of the songs for different countries, recording courses in the native language where possible. She even attempts some Japanese. She knows the word konnichiwa. Generally speaking, what will happen is if she is recording local choruses, it's just written out phonetically. You don't need to know the language to do that and then you have someone that speaks natively or speaks a language fluently and they're like yep that was accurate enough it didn't say that you know you were going to put a hat on their dog it's fine yeah i mean what we've got here is dom trying to do double entendre questions yet where are you biggest is this the first time you've participated in water sports but sam is just giving actual answers which I think is quite nice, really. She's like, I'm just going to sidestep that and literally tell you about my career, and then I'll tell you about how I sometimes jet ski when I go on holiday. They also briefly discuss doing a duet, and Dom rips off Lionel Richie. Well, I think it's because she says uh, Kanichiwa is hello in Japan, in Japanese, and he's like, oh, well, we'll just do Lionel Richie then. Because I know that word because I've been to Japan, as we'll find out. Okay, so after the break, we'll have Sam up on the Aqua Jet, and we'll have another climax on Mario 64 event. We'll be back quite literally in a minute. For clothes that get you a second look, go for the new Awesome and Winter Look Again catalogue on 0800 224 223. You can spread the cost with interest-free credit. There are famous brands and clothes you won't find in the shops. And if you're in a hurry, you can use our next day courier delivery service. Call now for your Look Again catalogue on 0800 224 223. That's 0800 224 223. Meet my friend, Dilip. Ah, home pride curry sauce. Cooks so well in the oven and it only takes a couple of minutes to prepare. So you've got more time to spend with your family. Curry in a bevy. As we Scots see, stone stuff. <laughs> Home fried cooking sauces. Authentic flavours from all around the world. Also available in Glasgow. Win £50,000 on some two-card bingo. Win the exciting Mitsubishi Sarayan Turbo. It's the meanest car on the street. And win the holiday of a lifetime with sizzling Samantha Fox. Six sun-kissed days and nights on a paradise island. You should be so lucky. It's all in your super soar-away sun this week. 
Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Why have Northern Upholstery and DFS become Britain's leading upholstery specialists? Because for 27 years, they've been listening to their customers. This is their latest survey, and this is the sort of thing that people said. Loads of choice. Nothing to pay for 18 months, so you can buy it now. Factory direct prices on everything they make. Exclusive designs. Not even a deposit. Free delivery. And there's four years free credit on everything we sell. With nothing to pay for the first 18 months. No deposit, no interest, no payments. It's only 699. Who else can offer you all this? That's Northern Upholstery and DFS. Come on, Lee. Get a move on, mate. Oh, hello. All right, love. Could you give us a lift? Sure, no problem. Come on, boys. Lucky you came along. Yeah, one of those, I suppose you get many cabs around here. Look, it's a brilliant idea. Now, why don't you go and talk to somebody who knows about it? All right, then. I will. NatWest Small Business Advisors help start up more small businesses than anyone else. Charlie Tango, Charlie, one to base, PRB, ETA 1515. That's a big 10 for Roger, Roger, come on. You what? I picked up the old deer and I'm on my way. Phone NatWest on 0800 777 to Games Master. Well, for years I've been trying to make her come. Sam Foxo is finally on the show. As we come back from the ad break, <laughs> bloody hell, Don welcomes us back from this ad break by saying that he's been trying to make Sam come, brackets, on this show, close brackets, for years and now it's finally happened. Like Christmas Day, we are starting this show as we mean to go on by the looks of things. Also coming back on the show, choose to read that how you will, is Derek Lynch because he's from Namco Wonder Parks and probably bought this machine in the back of a van. <laughs> Absolutely, he did. He said you've got to lean gracefully into the curves, hit the ramps in the middle. That's the best way to approach this track. Now, this challenge gets underway and you can tell Sam Fox has actually spent some time on a jet ski because she is treating this thing like a real jet ski. And bugger me, Luke, 
it's working. <laughs> it is, yeah. I mean, even though she's taken the corners pretty wide, like she isn't, she's never like massively struggling to hit the checkpoints and stuff or get to the end of the race. My notes on it are she avoids all the collisions. It's a completely clean race. And it's not until the last set of jumps, which is not something you would encounter much of in real life, which is three jumps one after another like that that she makes a mistake and she loses that line. She kind of veers off a little, struggles to get it back. And that's literally it. That's the only time when things go, excuse the expression, nipples north, and it costs her valuable second. She loses momentum. She loses her way a bit. But the alpine racer effect happens again and she coasts across the line at zero seconds. It's amazing how similar it is to that Jardine Duran one from Alpine Racer. It is, however, a genuinely exciting challenge. Yeah, it's great. There was a moment when she goes over like a big jump and she lands into the water and stuff and like literally goes under and Dom's like... <laughs> She's under the water, I'm top of the water, I thought I was going to have to dive in and I blame most of most of the <laughs> Which Derek finds absolutely hilarious. Uh, that is one of the closest challenges we've ever had yes. uh, on any series of Games Master. Tell us how it felt then, going around wielding this huge big machine. <laughs> well, actually, it's, it's um, very realistic, I must say. Uh-huh. It's very close to the real thing. Um, uh, what about when you were coming near the end? Were you worried at any point you weren't going to do it? Yeah, I, the big jump when, when, you go, when I went under the water, I was, I was uh-huh. kind of thinking, well, how am I going to get out of this? But I, I lifted the thing up, I don't know what it's called, the, um, the handlebar. Things fine, handlebars. And um, I pushed them up. And I seemed to come out of the water, and it was re- it was really good. It's amazing what can happen when you lift things up. It do, um, you you watch it, you. I'm gonna. Um, <laughs> that wasn't bad. I managed to go about two or three questions there, Sam, without saying anything remotely rude. It's great. It's a sign of intelligence, you know. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much. In the post-match, Dom talks about how that being one of the closest challenges they've ever had on any series of Games Master maybe perhaps forgetting Alpine Racer from the previous series. But yeah, I think that it sounds basically talking about how she quite enjoyed it. It was re- quite realistic. She was, you know, just not used to doing it in a virtual reality sort of situation. Yeah, she said, you know, the underwater section briefly confused her, but she lifted the handlebars up and it seemed to sort it out. And Dom says, it's amazing what can be achieved by lifting things up. And Sam is like, I will punch you. <laughs> yeah, I've, that's why I've written my notes here. She must be so used to this sort of laddie behaviour, given the career she's had. Dom's like, I'm quite proud. I made it a few sentences without saying anything rude. And she barbed right back saying, it's a sign of intelligence. And Dom just goes, you know what? Fair f- I've been bested by Sam Fox. I'm just going to bow out gracefully and present her with the new slimline Golden Games Master joystick, which, and I love this, she gets and immediately starts using to pew-pew people that are around the set. (laughs) She literally gets it. It's like, oh, actually, this is quite cool. (laughs) Pew-pew-pew. Pew-pew-pew. She had no idea what the prize was for winning this thing. Cards on the table. Some of the laddish stuff feels a bit uncomfortable. It's outdated. It's outdated, yeah. I can view it in the context of the time. I'm not even sure some of it works that well in the context of the time. But Sam definitely seemed to know what she was getting into. Didn't so much play along as partake and fire back. I wish we'd had a bit more of the verbal jousting that we got at the end where she did get better of Dom. And the thing I almost liked about that is Dom did just go, yep, you got me. Fair enough. That's it. You're probably sitting at home thinking, oh, once again, Dominic's being jetted off to the other ends of the world to laze about on some beach. Well, you're exactly right, except this time the beach, like 70% of my body, is artificial. Forget your weenie water parks, this is the largest man-made beach in the world, located uh, right next to the real beach over there. 
I'm actually in the Sagaya Beach Resort in Japan, and obviously I'm something of a cultural ambassador for my country, which is why I have brought the British Beach Essentials, football top, knotted hanky, and large British belly. Now, luckily enough, here's one I made earlier. Sagaya is a total Guinness Book of Records type place. Apart from the biggest automatic roof in the world, it has a beach made entirely of ground marble and a wave machine that generates 10-foot breakers. This is a really, really fascinating little feature here, the Sagaya Ocean Dome out in Japan. Okay, so the big question you can ask yourself here is, this is an artificial man-made beach that is situated less than a mile away from an actual beach. Well, what is the point of someone building an artificial beach a mile away from an actual beach? And the answer is, Japan had too much money and didn't know how to spend it. So they just spent it on loads of things that they thought would be good. And they spent a whole lot of money on this. It's basically just, you know, they just had lots of money. Like I, I was reading up about this. I found this in a gadget review article that was written, funny enough, last month. It was written in June 27, 2022 where they uh, write here, Japan was flush with cash and it didn't know how to spend it. 80s kids might remember that everyone was worried that Japan were going to take over the world with their superior manufacturing, video games, and severe cultural differences from the West. The Sea Dome is arguably a symbol of that excess, not least where it was located. The entire construct was, weirdly, less than a mile from an actual beach. And it cost 1.8 billion US dollars to build. Like, what was it? It opened like a couple of years earlier. It's like 1994 this thing opened. 93. 93. It peaked in 1995. So when we see this on Games Master, it's past. It's, it's over the crest of its wave. 300 metres long, 100 metres wide. It had a fake volcano. It had sand that was made by grinding down marble and other rocks to create the perfect consistency sand. It had artificial palm trees. It had the world's largest retractable roof. So, so even on a rainy day, you had a permanently blue sky. The air temperature was always held at around 30 degrees Celsius and the water was always 28 degrees. Every 15 minutes, the volcano erupted and waves were available for surfers round the clock whenever it was open. As a marvel of engineering, it is as impressive as it is excessive. And it could accommodate up to 10,000 people at any one time. Okay, brought people there. You know, 1995, one and a quarter million people visited the Dome. So it did have an audience. Apparently it was quite pricey to get in, but as a curio, people did go and check it out. And I, I guess the idea of it is because it's a Dome, even if it's bad weather, you can just close over the roof and you can still create like a tropical style atmosphere and have a beach day just not on an actual beach because it's raining outside. The problem is, is that's also very expensive to run because you're trying to heat this thing to the same temperature. And it's just like, it costs loads to make and it costs so much to upkeep as well. And eventually it was sold off to one company that was then sold off to another company, it was sold off to another company and eventually closed down in 2007. And it was demolished in 2017 and a hotel has been built there instead now. And it's like, if you look at the photos of the hotel at this point, you can still see like you can see the shots that they use in this games master thing so the location and see where that dome used to stand i'm actually just sending you a link because during my research uh, i went onto google maps and found it you can see the exact footprint of it you can see where the entrance is where the beach was mm -hmm. they, they're still they still haven't fully demolished it which nope. is crazy 
Yeah, it's it's amazing how much like it it almost still not stands to this day, but it's still there to this day. And you talked about entry, um, depending on the season, because there were peak and trough seasons. It would cost twenty dollars to get into for an adult, thirteen dollars to get into for a child, and that was just to get in. That's never minding all the other features or food and drink, because you can bet they've got you held to ransom there, much like a theme park, exactly like a Disney World, or you know, which we'll talk about next week. Sega World in the Trocadero. But back to 1996, Dom is presenting himself as a cultural ambassador, so he's bought the essentials. He has indeed, yeah. He is like 70% of Dom's body. This whole place is artificial. He is a cultural ambassador of the UK with his football shirt, knotted hanky, and big belly. It's not that big a belly. He's a little bit too hard on himself on that one. He covers all the details we just did about the retracting roof, the beach made of ground marble, a wave machine that can generate 10-foot breakers good enough to surf on. And we see people surfing on them. It's really quite impressive. I, I just love the fact when he's talking about the price of how much this cost, he, doesn't re- he does it in pop culture stories of the time. Because around this period of time, following Euro 96, Newcastle signed Alan Shearer from Blackburn Rovers for, at that point, a record £15 million. And I remember this being this huge story at the time, because around that time, like footballers were not sold for that level of money. And he kind of makes that joke here. He's just like, you could buy 11 Alan Shearers and a couple of subs for the price that it costs to make this. But we see Dom queuing because he's British, he's gonna queue, and he's queuing for a fake whitewater rafting motion ride, which is on the site of a fake beach that is less than a mile from a real beach. This is, it's weird. Well, this is, you know, we're talking about the excess of the, the money being spent here. It's just like, well, it can't just be a beach. It's also got to be a theme park. So it's got to have two different theme park rides, essentially. It's got like that 4DX style simulated motion ride thing. They've got one that's done by ILM that's got, you know, all of the sort of shaking about and 3D experiences that you would get if you went to a regular theme park. But like the, the incredible amounts of money being spent on all of this is unreal like just those parts there were like hundreds of millions of dollars and we cover i guess what was an estimated cost at the time it's certainly different from what's being reported now but dom says it cost 400 million dollars to build the entire thing is controlled from one room by one guy and dom asks the guy if he's ever pushed the wrong button by accident he says yes and dom asks him what happens and then the translation kicks in have you ever pushed the wrong button by mistake yes What's what happened? Hmm. Yeah, so they do the, the, the typical joke at the time, which is that uh, it's something like my bunny rabbit got stuck in an elevator or something like that. Yeah, my rabbit is stuck in the elevator. Yeah, uh, I went to my friend Karen to translate this for me instead. I literally sent her the link to it because she's fluent in Japanese. And I was like, what did the guy actually say? Because I need it for my notes. The guy actually said, Yes, there have been instances where I've pushed the wrong button and mistakenly showed the wrong screen, for example. So there you go. Come to game. You come to under consultation, we can give you the full story of Games Master. Rabbit stuck in an elevator is more entertaining as a line. It is, yeah. The thing I did, I guess, appreciate about that translation gag, it wasn't trying to make him look stupid. It was done in such a way as they were saying, we don't know what we're doing. We're using a very bad translation phrase book. You know, it wasn't... It wasn't the same as no problem, put it that way. No, it wasn't quite that bad, no. But yeah, like thank you to Karen for, for translating that. You can find her at Karen Peterson on Twitter. Hey, Karen Sensei. Impressive technology is all very well, but come on, we all know the real reason why people go on holiday. Do you get a lot of single people coming, like gangs of boys, gangs of girls? 
Yes, yeah? enjoying day Uh-huh. Is that a good place to pull? Yes, I think so. Yeah? Yes. Oh, excellent. Have you pulled? Mark's pulled. Pardon? Have you pulled? When, when British people go on holiday, they try to find a boyfriend or a girlfriend. Oh, it's called pulling. So have you I pulled? Just, I just go to Japan for sightseeing. No, no. I have a girlfriend already in Hong Kong. All right. Okay. But so why didn't you bring her here? Because it is very expensive. Right. And you wanted to go in the pool, didn't you? <laughs> but then we get the next part of this which is dom interviewing people about why they come here because the real reason to come to a place like this is to pull you go out there and you pull some birds you pull some lads and every single person he interviews has no idea what he is talking about or what he's referring to the poor lass that works at the place doesn't answer the question that he's asking i have a theory about this is she does clearly speak some english and so Dom starts by going, you know, do you get lots of different groups of boys and girls there together, single people looking to mingle? And she's like, oh, yes, which they probably do. I can see that being a thing that happens. He then asks if it's a good place to pull, at which point she looks behind her to the water and says, yes, because she thinks he said pool. Oh, that's probably not a bad shout, actually. Yeah. Because the other guys that he just asked, like the, the, the lass and the, the lad that he interviews that are punters there, don't really understand him. He kind of explains it to both of them, like what he really means. But even then, they don't really answer his question much. And the, the second lad that he sat there, he's like, hey, I got him. I got him. We got him to say the thing. He's got no idea what he is saying or answering. I love that second guy because he's like, no, 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 I, I've got a girlfriend in Hong Kong. And Dom's like, well, why didn't you bring her here? And he's like, because it's expensive. And I'm like, oh, shit. It's a good job she'll never see that. A hard day's pulling as Sagaya is rounded off by the light show, a technological frenzy of lasers, water cannons, and appallingly cheesy acting. It's a monument to bad taste, guaranteed to send you to bed in a hurry. Sagaya is Japan's ultimate high-tech holiday solution, and no doubt in the not-too-distant future, all of us will be spending our holidays in something similar. I can hardly wait. We end off the night with a light show with bad acting, a monument to bad taste, which was uh, nearly my intro line. And Dom, Dom leaves us by wondering if we'll all spend our holidays like this in something similar in the future. And the answer is no. I really like that feature. It didn't feel like Dom was punching down. It felt like he was kind of, he was punching himself. It's he was playing up the role of being kind of slightly daft. He's playing up ignorant Brit abroad and sort of highlighting how Brits are, because you know, this is also the period of time where Brits abroad was becoming a big thing in newspapers. So he's just playing up to that mantra. You know, I've got my T-shirt, I've got my football shirt on, I've got my big belly, my knotted hanky, this and the We're all going out here on the pool. Like he is just playing up that that role. And we get a, quite a bit of Dom in Japan throughout this series for the, the trip that he does, including in that fabled Christmas episode that we are, you know, on our way to. So we're going to see quite a bit of Dom out in Japan. And I think he really, really enjoyed himself out there. Also, I love seeing 90s Japan. Okay, it's all about to get rather exciting here because young trendsetter Nathan Souch has earlier on in the show completed the first part of his two-part challenge on Mario 64 on the N64. He got right through the final platform bit. 
Now he's got to do battle with Bowser in the game's very, very final level. We gave him three minutes to do both parts. He took one minute 53 to get past the platforms. Now all you young mathematicians out there will know that leaves him one minute and seven seconds for the final part. Kirk, is that enough time? That is just about enough time, but he cannot make one mistake at all. I mean, I've never seen this done in that sort of time scale. He's really just going to get in there and get it right first time. How does he get it right? What he does is he gets uh, uh, Bowser to try and chase him to the edge, does a somersault over the back, grabs him by the tail and throws him into one of the bombs that are placed round about the edge of the platform. If he can do that three times, then he's got the big guy down. But it's time for the finale. It's time for the end of this Mario 64 challenge and Nathan is back to do battle with Bowser. Yeah, he's got one minute and seven seconds on the clock. And Kirk says, you know, this is just about enough time, but he's never seen it done before. Which brings us to one of the more remarkable lines from this episode. Because, you know, we talked about this in Series 5 in the Christmas special, whether the clip show, where it was like, oh, it's one of the few times where they really referenced Dexter Fletcher. Dom says him by name in this episode. Okay, so he lands in the Bowser's there. There is the big guy. And he's saying, where have a hand for that Dexter Fletcher bloke from Series 3? Okay. Yeah, we get some dialogue from Bowser at the beginning of the sequence, and it's, of course it's in Japanese because they're playing the Japanese version. And Dom says that translates to whatever happened to that Dexter bloke from Series 3. Incredible. Absolutely amazing. But yeah, like we said earlier as well, he's got 1 minute 53, but he loses 10 seconds of that just on that intro cutscene there. And so it kind of means that he has got to do this pretty much bang on the banana, and he does that. Like, he just completely nails it. Particularly that final one, because it's a much harder because the bombs are moving. But he managed he times the swing perfectly. Nathan has done this a lot. I would wager that when he's got his import N64, he's only got Mario 64 as the one game. It's so tense because the first stage of swinging Bowser into the bombs, you just literally need to grab his tail, whoomph, and you will catch him on the first rotation. But when the gaming area shrinks and it becomes a star, oh, it becomes a lot tenser. Mm -hmm. It really does, yeah. And he does this with four seconds left on the clock. A fantastic... I really enjoyed this as, a, as an opening challenge, particularly because this is a game that we're not going to see in this country for another six months yet. And he, he does this with, what, four seconds left on the clock? Yeah, four it, seconds on the clock. I genuinely expected it to be tighter, but no, he kept his cool, he knew what he was doing, and our first non-celebrity golden joystick winner of the show. Now, uh... Four seconds left at the end there. It's quite tight, but you didn't look as if you were ever in any trouble. Were, were you at all? No, not really. But Bowser can turn nasty sometimes, so... Mm -hmm. You've always got to bear that in mind. Always got to bear that in mind. Now, uh, you are quite literally the first punter to uh, win against Master Golden Joystick of this series. What does that mean to you, Nathan? I've fulfilled my destiny. Well, uh, destiny is um, uh, one of many things we like to fulfil on this show. Congratulations. In the post-match, Dom just like, didn't look like you had any problem. And Nathan's like, nah, mate, completed yeah. it. Done it. Absolutely, yeah. He said that he was here to fulfil his destiny. And that's just one of the things that Dom's likes to fulfil on this show. Wank jokes. Absolutely, it is. So yeah, he gets his golden joystick and then... Dom promotes what's coming up next week. Okay, that's show one safely in the bag. And next week, we've got more N64 shenanigans with an exclusive playing and showing of Killer Instinct Gold plus Red Dwarf's Danny John Jules on the show. We'll see you in seven days' time. And i leave you with this thought. Instead of going through intense princess rescuing related traumas once every year, why doesn't Mario just get himself a new bird? 
Good night. Yeah, we've got more from the Nintendo 64. We've got an exclusive look at Killer Instinct Gold. And, dude, all six of my nipples are tingling. Well, one of the boys from the Dwarf is on his way. Danny John Jules will be on the show next week. I love, because we haven't had this in Series 2, where they're like, here's the celebrity coming on next week, and here's the games we're going to be playing. Are really tight. They knew exactly what each episode was going to be when they filmed this. And I like that a lot. Well, I thought that was a really, really great first episode. Like this is, I, I did enjoy series five, but this first episode here made me really, really excited for series six. I've got a lot of nostalgic memories for series six anyway, and, and series seven, like that five, six, seven were really like the, my era of Games Master when I was like old enough to really fully appreciate what was going on with the show this set up everything that i want from games master not every bit of it is aged well but we were kind of talking about this before we came on air it kind of feels like an amalgamation of everything that has come before it it has got a lot of the double entendre that we had in series one it has got some of the really great challenges that we got in series two it's kind of got split challenges that we saw in series three we've then got the sardonic nature of dom from series four and series five but also that kind of dominates atmosphere of series five combining it all together to make this new games master and i think it actually all comes together pretty well it's a real stew of games master elements and the harsher notes are balanced out and it's just all it's just creating a nice warming feeling i just really found writing notes for this first cluster of series six episodes easy easy and more than easy fun yeah it was a it's a breeze to write through these episodes which i think we said when we did series four as well but i think that's because it came off the back of series three which was like chaotic to take note from where series four was like a much easier thing to dive into and i think that this is it's a really easy episode to watch it's really easy to digest and as i said earlier as well you put yourself back into 1996 shoes october 1996 shoes you're watching a challenge on Mario 64, which we are not going to see until April of next year. Like, you're not going to be able to get your hands on this for another half a year. So the fact that you can get to watch someone play this on TV, that's really cool. And reviews of other N64 games that you might be able to get your hands on in six months' time. I think that's a really, really cool sign of the future. Absolutely. So yeah, I mean, so do you have a, a score in mind for, for what you had for this episode? I'm going to give it a flat 90. I had flat 90 as well. It's a strong start. It's not a, it's not a classic episode. It's not a classic episode, but there are no moments where it falls flat or no. it feels dull or I, I would actually say that, you know, for the I guess two and a half challenges we get because one challenge is kind of split into two. The gameplay was consistent. Everyone actually did a really good job including the celebrity, mm-hmm. which is a breath of fresh air because you know, let's be honest, a lot of the celebrity challenges are pretty crap. This one wasn't. It was really good. The reviews were really good. Okay, Ed felt a little bit out of his element. I'm not going to hold that against him because knowing what's coming down the line, the dude stepped up. Rick was fine. The news was good. The feature, because they kind of presented at the beginning going, we're not just video games, we're entertainment technology. It just fit in. And it was a really cool look at something completely bonkers from the 90s yeah because of that line because of that setup that dominic did at the start of the show everything now feels complete this is no longer as we say in our intro the greatest uk video game challenge tv show because it's no longer a video game challenge tv show 
this is a technology show and so it now just feels like a more whole uh, collective and stuff and like i so yeah for me like i had 90 percent written down for this bang off the like right off the bat because it's not an all-time classic episode but holy shit like it is an episode that lands and it sets out to do something and it achieves that with very minimal fault this is now tomorrow's world with dick jokes exactly yeah for the channel four generation but that is going to do it for this episode of games master thank you all so much for listening you all rule if you want to find us on social media you can find us on twitter at under console pod on instagram at under dot console and you can send us an email to feedback at underconsultation.com. And if you want to get to interact with us a little bit in real time with other listeners, with other fans of retro games and pop culture, you can do so over on our Discord, where there's a whole bunch of lovely people, including Rocket, one of our patrons, who has started a new YouTube series called Beat the Games Master. I watched him attempt the Mega Man 2 challenge from Series 1, and him getting not quite as... I mean, because the lad in Series 1 died, but he gets proper stuck on this. I love that there are other people out there making Games Master related content. I don't think we've ever wanted nor intended to hold a monopoly on it. So it's great that there are other people out there doing that. And also people that are doing stuff on YouTube related to bad influence as well. Breaking bad influences out there too. Head on over to the Discord. Links are plenty. Join the community. And if you want to support this podcast monetarily, you can do so over at patreon.com forward slash under console pod, where you'll get access to UCP Extra, which is this show format, but about other shows from the 80s and 90s and sometimes 2000s, and our monthly community show, Under Console Nation. At the five pound level, you'll get next week's episode with Danny John Jules, not on the show, but he's on Games Master Show. And that's at the five pound level, you get it one week early and ad free. But at the 10 pound level, you get a little bit extra. Ash, what do you get? You get our under-consultation Patreon pack, which contains a glittery golden joystick mug, stickers, badges, retro sweeties, retro trading cards, all sent straight to your door. And a shout out to those £10 backers, Xanderthol, William, Tom, The Amazing Cliff, Simon, Sean, Sarah, aka Pink Lithium, Richard, Reese, Nick, Misha, Matty, Boom, Mark, Link, Kevin, Jamie, Ian, Harriet, Manga Girl, Gordon Debster, Gordon Brands, David Palmer, David Fisher, Darkside73, Chrissy Two Sticks, Arcadia Wild Bill, Andy, Andrew, and Adam. Thank you all so much for listening. We will see you in seven days' time. Take care, everyone. Good night. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for mother's day than whole foods market they're your destination for unbeatable savings from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts start by saving 33 with prime on all body care and candles then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just 9.99 each with prime round out mom's menu with festive rosé irresistible berry chantilly cake and more special treats come celebrate mother's day at whole foods market Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. 
Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.